Welcome to Crucified. I'm your host, Charlie McQuillan, pastor of GraceWorks Bible Church in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and it is my privilege to be your teacher for this time as we study God's Word together, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. You know the verse, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's something we like to emphasize a lot here, and we appreciate you taking a listen today. Now, I want to acknowledge before we begin that I know it's been some time since an episode has been put out, and I want you to understand that with with my family, the ministry here, and a full-time job, Uh, It's hard to get this in and prioritize it the way that sometimes I would like to see it prioritized, but it falls on its place on the list of things to do, and and you can understand that. But we do strive for consistent output uh, when it comes. So there's there's times where it's real consistent, and then there's times where it's it's less so. But nonetheless, uh, this is something that uh, we we like to get out. Now, today what we're going to do is take some time and get into some questions that we've received. And let's start with this first one. It says here, In the past, you made a comment about freeing people from obligation to you. Will you please elaborate and explain what you meant? I think the context was not using people. As you know, we have gone through the book of Philemon, and I believe when I when I taught that at home here, during our Friday night study, that was a comment that I had made and emphasized. I don't recall if I made that on the on the program here, but but either way, uh, this comment about freeing people from obligation to you. Yes, you have to liberate people from being obligated to you or or owing you something, and there's always a context to that, and you need to be careful. Let me give you an example of this real quick. First Timothy, come with me to the book of First Timothy and chapter five. In a sense. There are obligations that you have, depending on your role in life and how you are functioning in certain relationships. Uh, As a husband, am I obligated to be, and as a believer especially, I'm obligated to be a husband to my wife, to love and cherish my wife, according to the example that uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ towards the church. My wife, she's obligated to me as my wife. As an employee, I'm obligated to function faithfully in the role of an employee to my employer. So it's not to say that there aren't any uh, obligations or, or things that you ought to be committed to, but I'll give you one example. Here's a verse, First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So there's an example where... Here's, here's an individual who needs to provide for his own, especially his own house. And if he doesn't do that, well, Paul says he's worse than an infidel. He has some obligations. But what I'm talking about, especially as I was going through the book of Philemon, if you look at Philemon, and I want you to see verse, uh, verse 13, he says, "...whom I would have retained with me, that in uh, thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. Here Paul's talking about Onesimus, of course. And in verse 14, But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. 
For perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldst receive him forever, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, here's an example where, where Paul says, you know, I could, I could command you to uh, liberate Onesimus and have him labor with me. This isn't something that I, I want to force on you as the apostle of Christ. I want you to do it willingly. And when you offer forgiveness or, or, or reconciliation or restoration to someone, uh, do it without strings attached, is the point. You need to liberate people from owing you something, appreciation, gratitude, all the like. Now, that's nice to receive, isn't it? But when you live under grace, you give freely without the expectation of something in return. Do not have the anticipation that this person is now going to live in a way that uh, you would be totally pleased with and happy with. If you're going to forgive, forgive freely. Don't worry about uh, the payback. When you love someone, love them free from the expectation of, of reciprocity. When you serve, do it freely without the expectation of reward, that type of thing. When you give, give freely. And oftentimes we will do certain things, but there are little, you know, even if they're faint, there, there's little strings attached. And you, get, you need to be careful of that. I need to be careful of that. You know, it's like when you give someone a gift, you want to thank you. You know, it's nice to get a thank you card or an expression of, uh, of gratitude. But sometimes you don't get that, and then you get all bent out of shape. Well, why did, you, why did you give the gift to begin with? Was it because someone would acknowledge how wonderful I am? That type of thing. See, it's, you got to be careful. Grace gives freely, without expectation of return. Now, I want you to see a couple of the verses here. If you look with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8... 2 Corinthians chapter 8, notice verse 9. Now, now Paul is talking, speaking here in the context of giving. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Now, Lord Jesus Christ gave himself that we might have eternal life and justification and all the like, that we might uh, grow up in him and, and appreciate our identity in Christ. It's a wonderful example there. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and, and this passage here, I'll tell you, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 14. This passage here, there's a couple verses that I'm going to read to you. These are wonderful verses, especially for those of us who labor in the ministry, who teach and minister to the saints in the capacity of, of leadership. You know, sometimes you, you, you teach, you lead, you set the example, at least you ought to. You, you take the life of Christ that you possess, take it seriously, and that puts you on the spot. And as you serve and, and as you minister to the saints, a lot of times it's not acknowledged. And, you know, quite frankly, that's okay. Uh, you know, there's times where it doesn't feel okay or it gets frustrating, but, you know, you need to kind of get over yourself. Look at verse 14 here. This is a wonderful couple of verses uh, in regards to ministry. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, this is verse 14 now, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Now here's the verse, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. It's an interesting statement. You know, Paul says, I'm even though 
the response might be, we don't, you know, it's not a loving one. The more abundantly he says, I love you, I will very gladly spend and be spent. Not only are you giving of yourself, but you're allowing others to take of you. Now that's, you know, that's ministry for you. But do it, when you do that, don't have the expectation that uh, the saints there owe you something. Let the doctrine work, and a healthy response will come. If they believe the Word of God, they receive the Word of God. And this is for anybody now. Let the doctrine work. Give it time to work. And, and you'll see the, uh, the life of Christ on display. You can't accelerate somebody's edification as much as we like to do that and as much as uh, other saints have wanted to do that with us. You know, aren't you, aren't you appreciative of the fact that people have been patient with you and patient with me and have given opportunity for us to learn, to grow, as slow as that may be at times, to let the doctrine do its work, let it mature us, let it work on us, and, you know, the, the responses that are healthy and good in Christ will come out. It just sometimes it takes time. Uh, anyway, that's what I was talking about uh, as far as freeing people from obligation to you. So hopefully that makes sense. And and living the grace life, uh, do it freely. Okay, so that's that's the idea there. Hopefully that answers uh, the question thoroughly enough. Now, here's another question that we have. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to do this one next. This one's a little more involved, and I want to be kind of a little cautious with this one, I, I suppose. Here's a here's an interesting question. How can a mother cope or deal with feelings of depression postpartum? Uh, what saith the scripture about this topic? How to be encouraged in the Lord? Okay, so there's kind of two parts here, right? Sometimes we have feelings of depression or discouragement, and then how do we how do we stay encouraged in the Lord? Now that is the key. It's in the Lord. Uh, in the scriptures, you're not going to find the word depression. It's not a Bible word, but but you do see it. It does exist. And uh, I heard a brother once uh, explain that when you're talking about depression, I mean, really, what are you talking about? And he described it as hopelessness. When you think of depression, you kind of get your mind stuck on your circumstances. There are frustrated ambitions. Things don't go your way. Really, the, the, the sight of, of what you have in Christ and thankfulness and appreciation, those types of things begin to get clouded over, and there's almost this paralysis that sets in. And, and sometimes we, we have this feeling of numbness. I know how it is. Sometimes you, what you want to do is just sleep and just tune everything out and not be, you know, and just, just sit there and kind of veg out. Well, that's, a, you know, not a good way to deal with things. And, and so the idea of having no hope, and, and then that paralysis comes in. And really what you get, what you have there is, is self-pity. And you look at your circumstances, and you feel like there are no answers, when in reality, there are answers. Now, again, I'm talking about just kind of the normal depression that everybody experiences at some point or another. So our thinking becomes fixed on what we don't have or, or can't have. Uh, Self-pity or, or not being thankful, those types of things will set in. And we become emotionally angry and paralyzed, and, and we just try to numb the frustration, the pain, the apathy sets in, the, the carelessness and, and, and anger sometimes too will, will kick in. So what do we need? Well, if, if depression is a sense of hopelessness, then you know what you need? You need hope, you need selflessness and thankfulness in your life. And I'll tell you, when you have the Word of God, when you have the Scriptures, you can confront much of those issues 
and deal with them head on. Now, let me give you an example here. Second Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to see here, here's Paul the Apostle, and, and here's a passage where when you read it, you're, you're really reading about some of the, uh, the emotional hardship and despair that the Apostle had in, in his own life. And that shocks people sometimes, I know, but, but you know, he's flesh just like, like we are, and so he wasn't immune from these things. Now look at Second Corinthians 1 verse 4, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, talking about the God of all comfort, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the suffering, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we have the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. That statement that he makes there in verse 8, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. You know, sometimes you have those, those feelings, the despair and the hopelessness. Nothing's going my way. And the frustration and the paralysis and all of that sets in. I'm, uh, it has to be said. Someone needs to say it. That is a self-centered viewpoint. You need to get off of that. The, the best answer, and, and, that, and it's in the question too, it's, there's, there's understanding in that question where they write, how to be encouraged in the Lord. See, the issue there is, where are you going to find your encouragement? You're not going to find it in entertainment. You're not going to find it in, in substances. It's not going to come from, you know, power of positive thought and self-help and, and all the like. It's going to be found in the Lord. Your encouragement, your fulfillment, your completeness need to be found not in worldly circumstances, but in your identity in Christ. You know, it's easy to say, quote Colossians 2.10, and, and, and say to someone, hey, don't forget, you are complete in Christ. Now that verse is true, and that's where your mind needs to go. But when someone is in, a, in, in the despair and in the, in, in the discouragement of life, you need those verses, but, but you need to help someone come along and, and think through it scripturally. You know, you're kind of giving them the, you're dropping the conclusion on them, and they need some of the material to put it all together and move on. So if you have an opportunity to encourage someone that's down and feeling a, a sense of hopelessness in their circumstances and, and life, bring them along. The scriptures are the thing that's going to work. It's the word of God that works, that effectually works in them that believe. And the encouragement needs to be found there. And what I would say is those verses about, about being complete in Christ and being accepted in the beloved and, and, and forgiveness and, and, and all the, just you keep, you know, you keep going. Go through Romans 5. Go through verses like that. Sometimes you need to just beat those verses into your head. I've been there personally, I know, where you need the truth of God's Word. Take the focus off of yourself and put it on Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus 
you know, you'd be amazed. It, sometimes it takes a number of, of, you know, the washing of water by the word. It takes a number of uh, rinse cycles. But you get your mind focused on that and serve others. That helps. Now, I want to, I just want to say, because this is often brought up and asked about, what about chemical or hormone imbalances? Is that legitimate? Is it okay to medicate? I'm not completely sure how to answer that that part of it. I, I do recognize that there that it is legitimate that you you know people do have there's chemical or hormonal issues and sometimes it takes medication uh you know maybe it maybe even you know a lifestyle changes things of to that regard i'm cautious as to speaking to that because i think there's two sides to that that issue and one is if someone does take medication to help them with depression Believers often look at that in a negative sense, and they and they look down upon that and say, well, you know, the scriptures, that's all you need. Well, if someone breaks their arm or has a, uh, a physical ailment, there's things that they do medically to help that. You don't say, well, you got a broken arm, the only thing you need is the Word of God. Uh, that ain't going to change your broken arm, okay? You need a cast. Uh, you've got a certain infection or virus or, or bacteria... The scriptures aren't going to remove that that infirmity, but you know there are mental infirmities and there are there are physiological things and and I would say there's there seems to be cases where the medication is necessary. So I'm not knocking that, and you you need to develop a, a sense of compassion in regards to those types of things. But let me just also say you want to exercise caution. Don't automatically assume that that's your issue. Like I said, most of the time, it's just bad attitudes that we develop. It starts somewhere, and then we allow it to consume our thinking. I would just say be careful, use some caution, uh, and really think through. And, and you know, it's it's important to have others with you to, to think through that stuff and work through that and, uh, and get it checked out, I guess. I'm more concerned with just the normal depression and discouragement that we all experience at times. You still need the, the Word of God, but if there's a, a physical issue... Sometimes you need a physical help. Uh, some things to, to be uh, considered of. Now, let me just add one other thing to the saint here, uh, the, the woman here that writes that question. How can a mother cope and deal with feelings of depression, discouragement? You know, let me, let me express a word to, to husbands. The verses in Ephesians 5 says to love and to cherish your wife. She needs your support. And I have seen this uh, personally. I think it's very, very common, especially, you know, depending on how many kids you have as well. There's times where, where my wife, you know, we've had little ones and, and you just have a baby, that type of thing. And it's overwhelming. It's a lot of work. After one and two and three and maybe, you know, maybe some more, we have five kids. You know, there's, there's a sense in which, you know, I'm off to work outside the home. She's working full time in the home. And, you know, people ask, does your wife work? Well, you know, nonstop. And that can get lonesome. That can get overwhelming and discouraging. And she has things that she would like to do, would like to tend to. When you're taking care of a, of a busy, young, needy household, the last thing you want is to just fly alone and not have the support of your husband. That's what is very, it's extremely necessary to have that. So husbands, learn from the, the, the mistakes. I've, I've made them. Your wife needs your support. Listen to her. You know, the tendency is, you know, we feel like we need to fix things. Your wife needs a friend, not a preacher or someone that uh, feels that they have to fix everything all the time. 
you'll be there with the scriptures. You'll be there as an encourager, uh, and you'll know when. But sometimes you just need to hear her out, be there for her, and uh, and give her a hug and and help. You know, help around uh, the the home, help with the kids, support her, encourage her that way, and then use those words fitly spoken and in, in, in a good season. Okay, so that would be. Uh, something to think about, and 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 by the way, also have verses ready. Be there with them in it. Pray, pray with them. Uh, encourage them. Talk to them about the things of the word. Sometimes it's nice to just talk about the scriptures that have nothing to do with the issue at all, and just talk about things that are important in God's word uh, outside of the, the the present issue. Okay, and let's move on to the next question here. This was put in our Q and A box here at home. Is it true the closer you draw to God, the closer He draws to you? I don't, I don't know if it was realized where this comes from. Now, this is kind of used, I know, as a cliche in Christian circles. And this saying, this statement, comes out of James chapter 4 and verse 8. James chapter 4 and verse 8. And I'll read it to you here. It says, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded now, this is a little more involved in the, in the context of the book of James. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 1, we read here, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So James is writing to Israel. He's writing to the nation Israel, the twelve tribes scattered abroad. And throughout the book, and this is something that you'll notice in a lot of the Hebrew epistles, Hebrews through the Revelation, when you when you read through certain sections of the book, there are times where the the writers are addressing specifically the believers, and then there's passages where they're making an appeal to the unbelievers of the nation Israel. And I believe this is what's happening in chapter four. And when you look at its context here, there's times where you'll notice he'll address my brethren, and then he'll address uh, the sinners. And he'll use other terms and titles. So when I read through James 4, to understand what's going on in this passage properly, you do want to take, as any passage you study, you want to take things in their context. Now look at verse 1. Let's begin in verse 1. James chapter 4, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your own lusts, uh, even of your lusts, rather, that war in your members? Ye lust, and have not, ye kill, and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask, and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Now notice verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy, but he giveth more grace? Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So before we read, read on in verse 9, 10, and, and 11 there, Notice in verse 4, he addresses the adulterers and adulteresses. And he talks about being a friend of the world and the enemy of God. And then he, he refers to the audience here in verse 8 as, Ye sinners, purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Well, if you read chapter 1, he talks about a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now look at verse 9. 
Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Uh, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. See, now then all of a sudden he changes and he addresses the brethren. What I would consider that really when you get to about verse 4, perhaps, uh, maybe from the beginning of the chapter even, he is addressing those that have not identified themselves with that believing remnant of Israel. That's what Luke chapter 12, verse 32 he says, fear not ye, uh, the little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So there's this, this little flock of believers that the Lord was forming, that the apostles were, were ministering to and, and, and forming this, this messianic church. And really that's who's in view here in the book of James. So you're not dealing with just believers yet. It's, it's of Israel, uh, the, those who have not identified themselves with the believing remnant of Israel. What they're doing, if, if you'll, you'll notice in verse, let's see here, verse 5, do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. So they're proud. They need to humble themselves. They need to submit themselves, he says, to God. That's verse 7. You'll also notice in verse 4, he says, uh, Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. When you read James, he talks, like in chapter 2, he talks about Abraham being the friend of God. And, and so there's this contrast here. There's friends of the world, and then there's the friend of God. Here, they're making their friendship with the world. Now, when you come down to verse 6 and 7, 8, he talks about giving more grace, and grace to the humble, and he resisteth the proud. I want you to see a couple of verses here in, in light of that. Look with me to Psalm 138 in verse 6. Psalm 138 and verse 6. And what we read here is, here we go. Here's Psalm 138. Notice verse 1. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. In the day when I cried, thou answered me. Uh, and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. But notice now this next phrase here, but the proud he knoweth afar off. Now, when James talks about resisting the proud, and in, the, and in the next verse there, he talks about submitting themselves to God and drawing nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to them. Here's a verse that he's talking about him resisting the proud, and he knows them from afar. They're not near. So the, those, the, the audience there in James chapter 4, are, they're not believers, at least for, for part of that chapter. And, and he'll identify the brethren later on, but but as you read through it, when the, the proud, the adulterers, the adulterers, and keep in mind, when he talks about the those who commit adultery in, in James chapter 4, he, he's not just talking about uh, fornication, that type of thing, stepping out on your marriage. Really what he's talking about is stepping out on, on God with their idols and their abominations and, and their, their religious system. Now, when you come to James chapter 4, and he says there in verse, let's go back there, James chapter 4 and verse 8, or verse 7, 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, there's two things I want you to keep in mind. When he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So when he's writing there, when James is writing to these, these individuals, and he says, submit yourselves, these are, not, these, are, these are individuals who have not done so, obviously. Now, if they were brethren, they would have done that. Look at Romans chapter 10 with me. Romans chapter 10, there's an interesting statement that, that Paul makes in regards to the nation Israel. Notice in uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now, he's describing here the state of, of, of Jews in the dispensation of grace. The, the, the issue that Paul is addressing there in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is what has happened to the nation Israel. Where, where is the, the, the covenant blessings and the fulfillment of those promises? Where are those things? Well, God has essentially put that on pause, and he's pursuing another purpose uh, with Jew and Gentile in the same status. They're all in unbelief, and he's having mercy upon all. And he's reaching the world with his grace and peace through the message, through the gospel of the grace of God committed to the Apostle Paul. But Paul makes an important point there in chapter 10, talking about his kinsmen. He says they're, going, they're ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So just like there in the book of James where he says, submit yourselves to God, well, these, these individuals have not done that. And they're, they're still too busy establishing their own righteousness. And so they need to take the instruction that James is giving them and humble themselves. And then he goes on, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I can't help but think of Matthew chapter 4. You know, the, the passage there where, where we read uh, that how the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted in all points, uh, like as we are yet without sin. Well, when you read Matthew chapter 4, here's the Lord Jesus Christ being tempted with uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He's tempted in all points, as, as we are yet without sin, and he resists the devil. If you go there in Matthew chapter 4, we'll, you can look at that on your own time, but, but if you want to see what, it, what it's like to resist the devil, the way you do that is, here's what, what saith the Scriptures, it is written. Go to the authority of God's word and let that be the thing that, that you trust in. These individuals, these, these uh, Jewish individuals here in, in this context that James is writing about, they need to submit themselves to the righteousness of God and appeal to what saith the scriptures. It says, resist the devil. If you want to see how that's done, look at Matthew chapter 4. It's a good example of that. Now, here comes verse 8. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. He's not talking to believers there. Now, that's kind of that's the thing I'm trying to emphasize. He's not addressing the, the believers, one, in the dispensation of grace, because this book is not written to you. It's written to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. He's talking about Israel. But it's not written to those, those believing members of Israel either. He's not writing that verse to them. So draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. I want you to see a couple of verses with me in light of this. Look at Matthew chapter 15. I'll read, here's a couple of interesting verses that we'll string together. Matthew chapter 15, and, and if you look at verse 1, 
It says here, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Good old religious operators there. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We read about that in Psalm uh, 138, where he where he talks about his heart, and see in this in this context there in, in verse eight when he quotes Isaiah, they're, they're, they draw nigh to him with their mouth. It's just lip service, but their heart is far from the Lord. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Come with me to Psalm 73, Psalm chapter 73. And notice verse 28, the last verse, says, But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all thy works. See, it's not a matter of just honoring him with your, uh, with your words. Here we have verses talking about drawing near to God and putting your trust in the Lord. Look with me at Psalm 145. Psalm 145, verse 18, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. I want you to see another verse here, Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 7. Even from the days of your fathers ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we, uh, we return? He says, draw nigh, and I will draw nigh to you. Return to me, and I will return to you. Say, when in, earlier in James, when he talks about the adulterers and the adulteresses, when you study Israel's history, they, they've been in this condition of apostasy and rebellion and, and, and have committed fornication with idols and strange gods and all the like. They've abandoned, they've abandoned God Almighty, the God of Israel. And they stepped out on him with all these other gods and all these other false idols and, and, and all of that. Now, one other verse I want you to see is Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah chapter 24 and verse 7. Now, keep in mind this, this issue of, of the heart. He says in verse 7, And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and they shall return unto me with their whole heart. You know... Under the new covenant, God is going to give Israel a new heart. And that will be established when he turns ungodliness away from Jacob, uh, as Romans 11, uh, 26 and 27 refer to, as the deliverer uh, comes out of Zion and turns ungodliness away from Jacob. So now keep in mind, in, in the book of James, one, he's writing to unbelievers, the, the, that unbelieving uh, population of, of Israel, and James is appealing to them to humble themselves to submit to God, and to put their trust in Him. And then it goes on and says, clean, uh, clean your hands and purify your hearts. Well, what is this a reference to? Real quick, 
a couple verses here. Look at Psalm 26 with me. Psalm chapter 26. Psalm chapter 26 and verse 9. He says, Gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men, in whose hands is mischief, and their right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in mine integrity, redeem me, and be merciful unto me. My foot standeth in an even place, in the congregations will I bless the Lord. Look at chapter 18 and verse 20. Psalm 18 and verse 20. We read here, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me. What was he talking about? Clean your hands and purify your hearts. Well, you purify your heart by faith. And then he talks about clean, having clean hands. You know, you, you're not associated with, with this other crowd here. You're, you know, your hands are clean. We say, say my hands are clean. I'm, I'm not mixed with, with unrighteousness. Now, if you continue, look at Psalm. Here's a, here's a good one. Psalm chapter 24. Psalm chapter 24 and verse 4. He says, He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Selah. So what is James getting at in chapter 4? Well, if you go back there, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. He's telling Israel, return to God and God will return to you. Purify your hearts, clean your hands. And, and that again, that whole issue there is... is uh, as you're seeing that God's blessing on them as, as they walk in his statutes and his judgments. Verse 8, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Now, uh, Zechariah chapter 12. If you look at Zechariah chapter 12, I want you to see verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadadrimon in the valley of Megiddon. And the land shall mourn, every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Nathan and apart, and their wives apart. And on he goes. When you continue and you read through that, that, that chapter there, he says, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David, this is chapter 13, verse 1, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now he's talking about a time, the Lord's going to return, he's going to draw near, He's going to return. They're going to look upon the, the one that, whom they have pierced, and there's going to be mourning. So when you turn back to James and chapter 4, and he says, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Well, that's something he's going to do in his kingdom when he is glorified in Israel. He's going to lift them up. The nations will come to the brightness of their rising, Isaiah talks about. We go through all of that. Isn't it interesting how uh, people will take a verse and say, well, draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you, and not regard its context or, or anything about the book of James 
uh, as well. And there's a failure to rightly divide the word of truth and keep things in their context and appreciate that God does different things with different people at different times. The reason I go through all of that is to emphasize something. How close are you to God Almighty today? As a member of the body of Christ in the dispensation of the grace of God, James isn't writing to you. Chapter 1, verse 1 establishes that. But is it true for us today that if we draw closer to God, he will draw close to us? He'll draw nigh? Well, I'll give you a couple verses to consider, and there's only a few that are probably necessary. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6 says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. I want you to see Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, that is, he's, he's made alive, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Well, that's good news. How about Colossians chapter 3 verse 12, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, and, and forbearing one another, and on he goes. He says, you're the elect of God. You're holy and beloved. One other verse I want you to consider is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, we read, God is faithful. Aren't you glad of that? God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, the Corinthians... They didn't, they didn't live a very faithful life at the time that Paul writes this letter to them, and also in 2 Corinthians, and, and they needed a lot of correction. But he says, you know, God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Your fellowship in, in the Son is not dependent upon your faithfulness. It is the reality that you experience because of the faithfulness of God Almighty and what he's given you in Christ. You are forgiven all trespasses. You are accepted in the beloved. You are complete in Christ. You access by faith this grace wherein we stand. Romans chapter 5 says we have peace with God, and we're to grow up into him and, and learn what it means to be in Christ and to experience all these wonderful blessings that we have as a result of that position. You are as near to God as he is with the Son. Now, that is, that's strong. That might make you uncomfortable a little bit. The reason we get uncomfortable sometimes with, with the grace of God is because we realize how undeserving and, and rotten we are in our flesh. But you know, God, God's focus isn't who you are in the flesh. His goal is to, to have Christ formed in our life. That's the goal. How close are you to God? Well, you're as close and as near to him and as dear to him as the Son now, that's a special place. Those are the verses that address the, the question. Is it true the closer you draw to God, the closer he draws to you? Well, you might need to grow closer to the Lord in your walk and in your, uh, in your understanding, but he's as close to you as he will ever be. And that's because of that wonderful position that we have in Christ. And that's a good thing. So we'll leave it at that. We've gone, we've gone on long enough with just a few questions. If you have questions for the future, uh, we're going to uh, we're going to start season two in August. And if you have questions, you can send those along to us at crucifiedpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's crucifiedpodcast at gmail.com. Till then, praise the Lord. <laughs>